Hi, everyone, and welcome to Darren Back Again. Technical dragons have been slain like Smaug in, in Erebor, and we are ready now to begin the 19th session discussing uh, Tolkien's Middle Earth. Tonight, we're discussing Chapter 3 of The Lord of the Rings 3 as Company, but we're also discussing an outstanding issue, a topic of conversation which I alighted upon last week and which I have spent some time delving into over the course of the last uh, the last seven days since last we spoke. And that is the issue of the One Ring and its power to render certain individuals invisible. Over the course of tonight's session, you can, of course, contribute here live in the YouTube chat. You can just type away here and I can see everything that you say to me, hopefully, hopefully, though there are uh, 43 of you. So the conversation tends to run pretty quickly. You can also get in touch with me over on Twitter using the hashtag tab again. That is T-A-B-A-G-A-I-N. I will see that through the course of the week. There are a number of us here. I see Tara here. Tara tells me on Twitter that she has found a gorgeous little cafe in the mountains from which she can join at tab again. That looks positively luxurious, Tara. I hope you're having a wonderful evening. We have Becca and Princess Ostrich and Jean and Lauren and Nikki and Kate and Madge and Graham and Angela. So good to have you guys all here. This is all wonderful. Um, Drive Heaving Llamas is asking, will this thing be at 9 p.m. for the foreseeable future? It will not. Um, I am trying to fix the... Uh, I'm trying to fix the schedule a little bit further in advance. Um, you can find the schedule at any point by uh, going over to pointnorthmedia.com and clicking on the shows button. There is an embedded calendar on that page that will show you up to the date information. If there's ever a change, if there's ever a cancellation, the first thing that I do is head over there and change the calendar, or you can find it as the pinned tweet at twitter.com slash pointnorthmedia. So there are ways of accessing that calendar. If you can access that calendar, you can also subscribe to it, I believe, for notifications and such like. So uh, you can always be up to date. Unfortunately, it's just, uh, it's kind of an imperfect system. I just have to sometimes move things around. Life gets in the way when you're a solo operation as I am. And uh, I try to uh, update you all as, as quickly and as frequently and as clearly as possible, but it's not always easy. So I apologize for inconveniences. I'm also trying to uh, set up the YouTube videos further in advance so that you can head to youtube.com slash pointnorthmedia and you'll see the list there of upcoming sessions too. Though there have been some problems with scheduling sessions in advance and then YouTube refusing to open up the uh, chat window next to the video, that's an issue. I'm also looking at some alternative uh, broadcasting platforms like Twitch. So stay tuned over the course of the next few weeks. I'm going to be doing some experiments here, doing some, uh, some trials to see if we can improve the experience for you, the Point North Media listener. Let's get into it tonight. Um, I want to begin by turning away, in fact, from The Lord of the Rings. And this is the kind of thing that I wouldn't do in literally any other book seminar series. I wouldn't do this if I was discussing Harry Potter. I wouldn't do this if I was discussing Pride and Prejudice or Outlander or, or any one of the books that I'm going to discuss over the course of the next five or 10 or 20 years. But Tolkien is different. And Tolkien is different because of the care that he, play, he paid to his secondary world, the level of creative investment that he poured into his secondary creation. Um, it is more valid within the pages of J.R.R. Tolkien to look at his other material for clarification and support than it is with literally any other writer in the English language. In the last session, we were talking a little about the ring, and we were talking about whether or not the ring rendered other people, other ring bearers, invisible during its, its time in their possession. And I said, I think correctly, that there's nothing in The Lord of the Rings that actually says that that is true. But there is some material in some of the expanded uh, 
Tolkienalia, some of the other books in the Tolkien Legendarium, and I wanted to pull a couple of excerpts and show those to you so that we can talk a little more purposefully about the influence of the ring and what exactly Tolkien had in mind. So this first uh, this first uh, slide comes to us from the Silmarillion. This comes, I have two slides actually from the Silmarillion, both of which come from uh, the Rings of Power in the Third Age, the, the very end of the Silmarillion, and this is the first. Man proved easier to ensnare. Those who used the nine rings became mighty in their day, kings, sorcerers, and warriors of old. They obtained glory and great wealth, yet it turned to their undoing. They had, as it seemed, unending life, yet life became unendurable to them. They could walk, if they would, unseen by all eyes in this world beneath the sun, and they could see things in worlds invisible to mortal man, but too often they beheld only the phantoms and delusions of Sauron. And one by one, Sooner or later, according to their native strength and to the good or evil of their wills in the beginning, they fell under the thraldom of the ring that they bore and under the, do the domination of the one, which was Sauron's. And they became forever invisible, save to him that wore the ruling ring, and they entered into the realm of shadows. The Nazgul were they, the ringwraiths, the enemy's most terrible servants. Darkness went with them, and they cried with the voices of death. So this is... Um, this is the accounting of the falling of the nine. This is the creation of the Nazgul, the creation of the Black Riders, who we will meet in tonight's actual reading. And crucially, we can see here, they, they could walk if they would, unseen by all eyes in the world beneath the sun, and they could see things in worlds invisible to mortal man. Yes, when the nine were wearing the rings, those rings which were later reclaimed by Sauron, they could be invisible. Then ultimately, we're told they became invisible always. Um... And they, be they became forever invisible, save to him that wore the ruling ring, and they entered into the realm of shadows. Now, there is a manifestation of their power that seems to return from the, the realm of race, whatever the supernatural realm is. That is why we can see them as, as they move through the world. Though this does suggest an interesting interpretation in one of the excerpts that we're going to look at tonight, when Frodo notes that the, the face of the Black Rider is invisible. Usually, we take that to mean invisible in a more kind of colloquial and less supernatural sense. That is to say that Frodo simply couldn't see it, but this suggests a different interpretation. Um, let me see here. Uh, good. Uh, Nikki says here, it kind of sucks that they're damned for life when they don't even know what they're getting themselves into. Yes, yes. Pretty terrible. Pretty terrible. Um, good. Yes, we all love the ring rates. It's pretty good. Okay. <laughs> so that's the, first, uh, that's the first piece of analysis there. The second is here also from the Rings of Power in the Third Age. And this speaks to Isildur and the loss of the ring at the Gladden Fields uh, right after the dawn of the Third Age. But Isildur was overwhelmed by a host of orcs that lay in wait in the misty mountains, and they descended upon him at unawares in his camp between the Greenwood and the Great River, nigh to Leag Ningleron, the Gladden Fields, for he was heedless and set no guard, deeming that all his foes were overthrown. Overthrown, excuse me. There well nigh all his people were slain, and among them were his three elder sons, Elendor, Aratan, and Kyrian. But his wife and his youngest son, Valandel, he left in Imladris when he went to war. Isildur himself escaped by means of the ring, for when he wore it he was invisible to all eyes. But the orcs hunted him by scent and slot until he came to the river and plunged in. There the ring betrayed him and avenged its maker, for it slipped from his finger as he swam and it was lost in the water. Then the orcs saw him as he labored in the stream, and they shot him with many arrows, and that was his end." Only three of his people ever came, excuse me, only three of his people came ever back over the mountains after long wandering. And of those, one was Otar, his esquire, 
to whose keeping he had given the shards of the sword of Allendale. So this is how the broken sword survives the Gladden Fields, but also, yes, yes, Isildur could be invisible. The last sample that I wanted to pull out here is from Unfinished Tales, which, as we noted last week, gives a somewhat more charitable perspective on Isildur and the, event, the events of the Gladden Fields here. Um, Jackie says it doesn't actually say he was invisible in the Unfinished Tales account. It doesn't, Jackie. You're right, but it's suggestive. At least this is this is the, the relevant uh, section here. Isildur turned west, and drawing up the ring that hung in a wallet from a fine chain about his neck, he set it upon his finger with a cry of pain and was never seen again by any eye upon Middle-earth. That, of course, would be the significant, though certainly ambiguous, passage. Uh, Men and orcs gave way in fear, it says here at the end of the first paragraph, and Isildur, drawing a hood over his head, vanished into the night. Of what befell the Dunedain, only this was later known. Ere long they were all dead, save one, a young esquire, stunned and buried under fallen man. So perished Elendor, who should afterwards have been king, and as all foretold who knew him in his strength and wisdom, and his majesty without pride, one of the greatest, the fairest of the seed of Elendil, most like to his grandsire. Now, Visidor is told that he was in great pain and anguish of heart, but at first he ran like a stag from the hounds until he came to the bottom of the valley. There he halted to make sure that he was not pursued, for orcs can track a fugitive in the dark by scent and needed no eyes. Then he went on more warily, for wide flats stretched out into the gloom before him, rough and pathless with many, with many traps for wandering feet. On the one hand, he goes hooded, and it is dark. So there is an ambiguity here. On the other, he was never seen again by any eye upon Middle Earth, and orcs can track a fugitive in the dark by scent and needed no eyes. It is certainly possible that we are supposed to uh, that we are supposed to understand that Isildur was invisible during his flight from the orcs in the aftermath of the Battle of, of the Gladden Fields. Uh, this account here of the the death of Elendor is one of my favorite passages in Unfinished Tales. So I can definitely recommend Unfinished Tales to all of you. Yes, okay. Let me see here. Uh, Jenna is asking, not to pester you, but are you still planning on uploading a lecture slash email episode? Yes, absolutely, I am. And in the near future, early next week, I want to say, next week is going to be an extremely busy week uh, at Point North Media. So uh, definitely pay attention. And if you haven't yet subscribed to the newsletter, head on over to pointnorthmedia.com and do so. Because, yeah, I'm planning between there and back again. I'm planning two sessions of there and back again. I'm planning two episodes of Storms on the Way. I'm planning a special one shot that is going to go out on Wednesday next week. So there's going to be a lot. And of course, the Patreon exclusive Q&As that happen every Friday. So it's going to be a very busy week next week. But yes, a little pickup from our discussions uh, previously. And also next week's session of There and Back Again, we're going to look at chapter four and then also do a little Q&A. So I have a lot of material to cover. So hopefully between those two sessions, we should catch up properly. That would be pretty good. Uh, good busy, says Jenna. Yes, a good kind of busy. The best kind of busy. Just lots and lots of busy. Good. Um, let's get into it then. So all of this is to say, of course, that uh, though it is a little ambiguous in the case of Isildur, it does seem as though the Nine render their bearers invisible and the One Ring when it was worn by Isildur certainly could, thanks to some generous interpretation, have made him invisible too. Why is this important? Well, it's important because we have to understand the consequence of the ring. We have to understand the kind of, uh, the the primary purpose, the primary function of the one ring and how it, how it wields its power. 
if it can be said at all, to wield its power. It seems as though the ring can draw the host, draw the bearer into the the wraith realm, into this this other plane of existence. Certainly this is, I mean, easy to associate with the kind of visual effect that we get in the Peter Jackson adaptations, wherein, you know, Frodo puts on the ring and passes into the world of, of whispers and shadows and odd digital effects, you know. That seems like a compelling piece of adaptation. That seems like a compelling interpretation of what the ring is actually doing. One of the details that jumped out to me this time reading Unfinished Tales is a cry of pain when he puts on the ring. It seems as though this is a torment to him, though presumably in the aftermath of Sauron's fall, which happened two years before, the ring would be less powerful. Certainly it suggests, it, it is suggested in the text of the Lord of the Rings that the ring is growing in power with the return of the shadow. Here the shadow has most recently been vanquished. So I'm curious about that. I'm curious about that particular detail and what it is that calls Isildur to to cry out in pain. But certainly, invisibility seems to be one of the primary powers of the ring, one of the primary functions of the ring, and seems to be inextricably tied to the wraithification effect, to the pulling of mortal men into the realm of the wraith. We don't yet know what would happen to a mortal being that was completely consumed by the One Ring. We don't yet know what would happen if Gollum had continued to wear the ring for another century, another five centuries, another millennium. We don't know what would have happened, though it doesn't seem as though he would have been transformed in the same way that the Nazgul were transformed. Now, that may be because he is not a mortal man and he has that that hobbit resilience, or it may be that the One Ring is simply different, that it has some kind of different quality to it. Yeah. Okay, let me see. Um, uh, Stephen Brown asks, did Isildur have a desire or need to be invisible? Could the ring work like that? Um, Huh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Possibly, though Bilbo never did. Um, Though we have to remember that Isildur is the first person to wear the ring after Sauron. He is the first, you know, mortal person to wear the ring. So it is possible that he kind of imprinted a power set upon the ring that's that's curious yeah yeah that might be a a fertile field for some speculation there but we just don't know unfortunately yeah good graham ward says i love how tolkien teases us with what would become of a completely ascendant ring bearer well great and terrible things i'm sure um a certain kind of of deadly deadly magnificence as gandalf hinted in the last chapter and as galadriel ultimately will hint too yeah good okay Let's, um, excellent. Uh, Nikki says, I know it's specifically mentioned somewhere that while the dwarves didn't fall into the, uh, why the dwarves didn't fall into the power of the rings, something about the stout heartedness. Yes. Uh, the dwarves did not succumb to the dwarven rings, but the dwarven rings did apparently engender a new and more fearsome avarice within the hearts of dwarves that led to the creation of their hordes and led thereafter to the coming of dragons. You know, dragons are attracted to the kind of hordes that the dwarves uh, created under the influence of the ring. They spoke to that, that impulse toward greed that the dwarves have, the dragon sickness. Yeah, good. Um, Excellent. All right, let's move into then chapter three, as I said, a lot of ground to cover, you guys. But we begin with an unexpected delay here, um, as uh, as Frodo still hasn't left the Shire. You ought to go quietly, and you ought to go soon, said Gandalf. Two or three weeks had passed, and still Frodo made no sign of getting ready to go. I know, but it is difficult to do both, he objected. If I just vanish like Bilbo, the tale will be all over the Shire in no time. Of course you mustn't vanish, said Gandalf. That wouldn't do at all. I said soon, not instantly. 
If you can think of any way of slipping out of the Shire without it being generally known, it will be worth a little delay. But you must not delay too long. What about the autumn? On or after our birthday? asked Frodo. I think I could probably make some arrangements by then. To tell the truth, he was very reluctant to start, now that it had come to the point. Bag End seemed a more desirable residence than it had for years, and he wanted to savor as much as he could of his last summer in the Shire. When autumn came, he knew that part, at least, of his heart would think more kindly of journeying, as it always did at that season. He had indeed privately made up his mind to leave on his 50th birthday, Bilbo's 128th. It seemed somehow the proper day on which to set out and follow him. Following Bilbo was uppermost in his mind, and the one thing that made the thought of leaving bearable. He thought as little as possible about the ring and where it might lead him in the end, but he did not tell all his thoughts to Gandalf. What the wizard guessed was always difficult to tell. As Sarah Thomas is calling out here uh, in the YouTube chat, our birthday, such an adorable piece of capitalization. Our, capital O, birthday, capital B. Frodo still thinks of Bilbo constantly. He still shares this time with Bilbo. He's still aware of their connection. Indeed, as we discussed last time, when Frodo was thinking of leaving the Shire, Bilbo is one of the great hopes that flares up in his heart. He gets this urge to travel and explore. He gets this, this, this Tookish inclination toward adventure, and it's Bilbo. It's toward Bilbo that he turns the hope of finding Bilbo again. And now, of course, too, as Nikki says here in the YouTube chat, I feel for Frodo. The more you know the unexpected is coming for you, the more you want to cling to the expected. It's uncertainty. Uncertainty now lies before him. And so the familiar comforts which have chafed him, the familiar comforts which have constrained him over the course of the last two decades at least, are now feeling a little more comfortable. He's now thinking of summer in the Shire as a delightful time, as a time that he he wants to experience to its fullest, and then to leave again in the autumn. And it's important to note here that Gandalf is not urging for a rapid departure. This isn't just Frodo procrastinating, though it certainly is, but apparently two or three weeks have passed before Gandalf says, um... So, hey, remember that conversation we had about the ring and about how you're going to go and destroy it, how you're going to be the one to save Middle-earth? How about that? How are things going? How are plans going for that? He lets Frodo have this time, which I think is crucial, and certainly doesn't push back against the idea of Frodo staying until the fall. Six months, apparently, uh, a fairly swift time for a hobbit to make major travel plans. And to be a little less facetious, certainly a sufficient amount of time for Frodo to say goodbye to his home, apparently, forever. So what is the plan here? What is the play here? What is it that we're trying to accomplish? Well, it is evident that it is more important for Frodo to leave quietly than it is for Frodo to leave quickly. And in part, we know that this is because the enemy is now looking for the Shire. As Gandalf told us back in chapter two, the enemy has now heard the name Baggins, has now heard of the Shire, has heard of these things from Gollum. He knows that the ring is somewhere here and is presumably investigating, but that is half a world away. And as I said last time, there is no map in the Shire that has Mordor on it. And there is no map in Mordor that has the Shire on it. And this is an unfathomable journey for most people at this time. There, there simply isn't a way of traversing the land without you know, major support. We're, we're, we're looking at a, a major expedition if we even knew which direction we should go in. So Gandalf isn't worried about the immediate threat. Now, it turns out, of course, that that's kind of a mistake. Frodo really dodges a bullet by the time that he is ready to leave. Had he delayed a day longer, had he delayed an hour longer, 
it would have been too late. But he manages to ride his luck all the way up to the line and then take action, as we'll see in the chapters to come. So why is it then that secrecy is so important? Presumably, it's to forestall potential rumors. If Frodo vanishes, the story is going to be much bigger, much more powerful. It is going to, to take on a life of its own, just as Bilbo's disappearance took on a life of its own. Remember that the narrator tells us that that story doesn't disappear at all. Mad Baggins becomes a character common in folklore, that, that Bilbo's sudden disappearance, as dramatic as it is, is, is kind of folded into the myth of the Shire, and you can rest assured that it traveled far beyond the borders of the Shire. It found its way to people who had never heard the truth of the Shire, never heard the truth of Hobbits, never heard the truth of Bilbo Baggins, and if Frodo disappears suddenly, particularly on the heels of Bilbo's sudden disappearance, you can rest assured that that story too will travel far and wide, and if it does, it is only going to gather attention. It is only going to attract the eyes of the enemy. It is only going to draw more spies and agents of Sauron to the Shire. It's not just going to endanger Frodo and his quest. It's also going to endanger the hobbits. It's going to endanger everyone in the Shire. Gandalf is trying to do this quietly because that is the safest route. Um, Graham said, I think the movie has tarnished us by giving, the, by giving this idea that they all feel urgent about the ring. In the book, at least, it seems clear that no one feels urgently apart from Sauron. Yes, the handling of the timeline in the movie is pretty slipshod. Um, it isn't clear how much time passes between the long-expected party and then Frodo's ultimate departure, but it doesn't seem like long. If it's a year, I'd be very surprised. And then, of course, when we have to take action, we take action rapidly. All of time is compressed in the Peter Jackson trilogy. It just, time just passes much more rapidly. And that becomes absurd by the time that we get to, uh, by the time that we get to the Hobbit trilogy too. At that point, we're paying almost no heed to the constraints of geography in particular, I think, to the amount of time that it takes to travel from one place to another. That doesn't seem to actually carry any weight at all when we get to the Hobbit and little enough weight when we're in the Lord of the Rings trilogy too. Good. Um, <laughs> Jackie says, I've always imagined the maps of Mordor were super outdated. Like, I've been pretty distracted for a while. I need to update my archives. Yes, I can imagine that perhaps there is, yes, at the dawn of the second age, this is what the world looked like. Well, cool. Um, this isn't that helpful, actually. This is like when you look at, you know, maps of, of Pangea or whatever. <laughs> um Good, yes. And, and as Graham calls out, uh, they have no idea the Nazgul are even around these days. Gandalf vaguely says the enemy is searching, but they can only guess about Sauron's plan. This is absolutely true. He, he not only doesn't know that the Nazgul are searching for Frodo, he doesn't know that the Nazgul are in the world again. He doesn't know that this has happened. So Gandalf's uh, caution here is, I think, a little more forgivable, a little more readily understandable than, uh, than it would otherwise seem. Um, I think Jen had it. Jenna, uh, on the heels of Bilbo's disappearance, almost 20 years later, isn't quite on the heels. I think it's more on the heels than we would think it is to hobbits. I think that uh, 20 years ago is fairly recent history to hobbits who uh, who pay such close attention to uh, to um, to genealogy and to history, to, to you know, tales of, of the family. I think hobbits would, would consider 20 years ago to be fairly recent and still pretty scandalous. Um, what are hobbits, says Sauron, <laughs> says Jackie. That's very cute. Yes, yes. Excellent. Gareth says, Sauron, hobbits, how do they work? <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Um, 
Good. Okay. Let's keep uh, pushing on. So we're going to take some delay here. Gandalf says, it's been a couple weeks. You ready to go? And Frodo's like, well, I was thinking six months to six months sound all right. And uh, Gandalf's okay. Fine. Six months will probably be okay. And then we learn Gandalf stayed in the Shire for over two months. Then one evening at the end of June, soon after Frodo's plan had been finally arranged, he suddenly announced that he was going off again next morning. Only for a short while, I hope, he said, but I'm going down beyond the southern borders to get some news if I can. I have been idle longer than I should. He spoke lightly, but it seemed to Frodo that he looked rather worried. Has anything happened? he asked. Well, no, but I have heard something that has made me anxious and needs looking into. If I think it necessary, after all, for you to get off at once, I shall come back immediately, or at least send word. In the meanwhile, stick to your plan, but be more careful than ever, especially of the ring. Let me impress on you once more. Don't use it. He went off at dawn. I may be back any day, he said. At the very latest, I shall come back for the farewell party. I think, after all, you may need my company on the road. At first, Frodo was a good deal disturbed and wondered often what Gandalf could have heard. But his uneasiness wore off, and in the fine weather he forgot his troubles for a while. The Shire had seldom seen so fair a summer or so rich an autumn. The trees were laden with apples, honey was dripping in the combs, and the corn was tall and full. As Karen Ruff says in the YouTube chat, one can imagine the eyebrow action on a worried Gandalf. That's pretty terrifying, actually. Pretty, pretty terrifying. Yes. <laughs> so after two months, Gandalf disappears. He, he steps out of the Shire for a moment. And he steps out of the Shire because he has heard something disquieting. I have heard something that has made me anxious and needs looking into. So some obvious questions. What has he heard? From whom did he hear it? Where is he going for more information? Well, that last point we can at least speculate because we know that the Shire is being patrolled, is being protected by the Rangers. So it seems likely that he is, because he says that he is leaving the borders of the Shire, but not actually going anywhere else. He doesn't say, oh, I'm going to Orthanc or, oh, I'm going to Rohan. I'm, I'm heading down to, you know, wherever. I'm, I'm going to stop by the local library and find out some more information if I can. There's an internet cafe at the Gap of Rohan that I'm going to go and check out. He's not doing that. He's just leaving the borders of the Shire, which suggests to me immediately rangers. But what did he hear and from whom did he hear it? Well, he probably heard it from the kind of traveler who has been passing through the Shire with whom Frodo is fairly well acquainted. Frodo has been hanging out with, uh, with dwarves and, I guess, men, too, who have been passing through the Shire, learning all the news that they can learn. I wonder if he has heard some hint of the Nazgul. I wonder if he has heard some hint of black riders searching for Baggins and the Shire. And this is why he is taking action. It's possible. It's conceivable. We never find out definitively what it is that causes him to leave. But the fact that he is going for a short while just beyond the borders implies to me that he, this is just a little, a little intelligence sharing operation. He's just going to go and hang out with some rangers. Just, yeah, hanging out with Aragorn is both Jenna and, uh, no, I'm sorry, as Jenna says in the YouTube chat, it don't connect, says Aragorn is my second favorite. We're going to get to talk about Aragorn pretty soon. It's going to be good. Um, as Wildfire says, who would want to leave the Shire? This is an excellent question. Gandalf has been hanging out for two months while the trees are laden with apples, honey is dripping in the combs, and the corn is tall and full. And that is a beautiful detail. Frodo explicitly wants to spend time in the Shire because he wants to enjoy the last summer that he's going to spend there. And that last summer, when it comes, is the most beautiful summer that, that anyone can remember. It's, it's a 
perfect Shire summer. And this is, this is, it's tempting to read a significance into this. It's tempting to understand that some force having handed Frodo the ring, some power having handed Frodo the ring and said, okay, well, I guess this is your responsibility now, has breathed a little benevolence into the world, has, has touched the Shire and enchanted it with this glorious summer, with this glorious fall. That would be very tempting, I think, to believe as we move toward Frodo's birthday and his final departure. It is also possible, of course, that we are just in Frodo's POV at this point. It is possible that this is a completely conventional, average, yeah, maybe even a little below average kind of summer in the Shire. But to Frodo's renewed eyes, to Frodo's unjaded perception, he now sees the Shire in all of its loveliness. I think either one of those explanations works really quite well. Yeah. <laughs> Victoria says, pretty soon, lol. I read ahead to chapter seven and still no Aragorn. I always forget how long it takes to get to him. Pretty soon in the grand scheme of things, Victoria. Pretty pretty soon in the grand scheme of things. It's going to be, yeah, a few more weeks of, uh, a few more weeks of discussion before we get there. Good. James Downey says, sounds like Gandalf was milking the high time of the Shire before getting back to work. Well, I mean, wouldn't you? Oh, and Jenna says, or is it just perfect for Frodo because it's his last real summer in the Shire? Exactly, exactly. I think that's a, I think that's a very uh, possible interpretation, yes. And as Jenna says, like, presumably he's writing this down years later, and this is the last time the Shire felt like the Shire to him. We must remember, of course, that in large part, at least, this account is written by Frodo. It's not completely written by Frodo, and it has passed down through other authors, through other, uh, through other retailers. So, so there has been a process of adaptation, but it is possible that that sentiment was original to Frodo, that he, in his, in his original conception of, of this part of the, the novel, wrote out exactly that, that, that he looked back on his summer in the Shire and found it beautiful. Yes. Good. Good. All right. Excellent. Um, let me see here as we move on, um, because we're getting very close to uh, the final departure. Well, we get a double beat of departure, uh, one of which casts a long shadow. Uh, Frodo decides that he is going to go to Buckland. This is the cover story, that he is going to move back to Buckland. It is all completely prosaic, and no one really cares. And there's some speculation about the Sackville Bagginses and about their final purchase of Bag End, but really it's just a piece of, of Hobbit business. And then the night comes after an extended party, after an extended celebration, after lingering a little, even after Lobelia shows up to take possession of Bag End early. Sackville Baggins is! Even then, Frodo is finally ready to leave. And this is really his first step on the road. The sun went down. Bag End seemed sad and gloomy and disheveled. Frodo wandered round the familiar rooms and saw the light of the sunset fade on the walls and shadows creep out of the corners it grew slowly dark, indoors. He went out and walked down to the gate at the bottom of the path, and then on a short way down the hill road. He half expected to see Gandalf come striding up through the dusk. The sky was clear and the stars were growing bright. It's going to be a fine night, he said aloud. That's good for a beginning. I feel like walking. I can't bear any more hanging about. I'm going to start and Gandalf must follow me. He turned to go back and then stopped for he heard voices just round the corner by the end of Bagshot Row. One voice was certainly the old gaffer's, the other was strange and somehow unpleasant. He could not make out what it said, but he heard the gaffer's answers, which were rather shrill. The old man seemed put out. No, Mr. Baggins has gone away. Went this morning and my Sam went with him. Anyway, all his stuff went. Yes, sold out and gone, I tell you. Why? Why is none of my business or yours? Where to? That ain't no secret. He's moved to Buckleby or some such place, away down yonder. Yes, it is a tidy way. I've never been so far myself. There's queer folks in Buckland. 
No, I can't give no message. Good night to you. The walking down the road to hear the interaction between the gaffer and what we will later learn to be one of the black writers is, I mean, Frodo is going to have much closer brushes with danger. Frodo is going to be in worse circumstances than he is at this moment. But the delta between the danger that Frodo is in and the danger Frodo believes himself to be in will perhaps never be higher than it is at this moment. Emissaries of the enemy have gone out in force across the world, across unknown lands. They have tracked the name Shire and tracked the name Baggins, and they have made it all the way to Hobbiton, and it has taken them years, and now they are here, and they stop at Bagshot Row. They stop at the foot of the hill, and that gives Frodo time to escape. It's enormously powerful and it is so beautifully constructed that that here we get the gaffer just being you know <laughs> being the gaffer honestly it's pretty great and i like to you know the, the the temptation to kind of reconstruct both sides of the conversation it's it's pretty cute but then when we're told later what actually happened and then when we're told later still what we actually dealt with it's chilling. It's absolutely chilling. And when you return to The Lord of the Rings after your first read-through, this moment, as I said, casts a very, very long shadow. So what is it here that keeps Frodo safe? What is it that urges him to walk down the hill, to overhear this conversation? What is it that urges him there and then to leave? Is this that traditional Baggins luck? Is this the influence of the ring? Is this some kind of, of eucatastrophe? Is this some kind of, or, or prelude to eucatastrophe? Is this the intercession of grace? What is it that leads Frodo down the road? Because presumably, okay, so the Black Rider probably isn't going to climb the hill to Bag End because the gaffer is telling him, no, no, he's gone away. He's gone off to Buckland. But maybe the Black Rider, maybe the Black Rider, having just heard this story, would investigate anyway. Maybe the Black Rider would climb the hill anyway. It's possible. It's certainly too close to call. Yeah. Uh, let me see here. Oh, we're losing Stephen. Stephen's heading off. Uh, he's got to put a toddler to bed. Stephen, I empathize. Go have a good night. <laughs> yes. Uh, Shane says, being so sneaky, I wonder why the writer did not just sneak up later. Yeah, I don't think that the, the, the writer is... Um, I don't think that the Black Rider is caught by the gaffer. I think the Black Rider is looking for Baggins. I think the Black Rider is probably questioning someone. And you can imagine the, the, the trail of interviews that kind of leads him across the Shire. Oh, he's finally found the Shire. And then he goes and he says, Baggins. And they say, no, uh, maybe like up Hobbiton way, I suppose you might find a Baggins. There are a lot of Bagginses up there. So he goes and he gets a little closer and he asks someone, Baggins. And they say, uh, yeah, actually there are some Baggins and they're living over here. You should probably go and check that out. He makes it all the way to Hobbiton and he says, Baggins. And they're like, oh yeah, the hill, it's right over there. And he makes it all the way to the gaffer. Baggins, he says, no, sorry, Frodo's just left town. Can't give him a message. Apologies. It's none of your, it's none of my business and it's none of yours either. It says the gaffer. Which is probably the the greatest you know um, act of, of reckless impudence that we'll see in the pages of the Lord of the, uh, in the pages of the Lord of the Rings. It's just lovely. Yes, yes, good, excellent. Yeah, as Jackie as Jackie um, calls out here, uh, it wouldn't be a Hobbit because they would know. Yes, good. 
Um, yes, and Jackie continues, the writers are looking for information and bribing people, we find out later, they need cooperation, which is interesting. It's an interesting detail. We're going to get a couple of perspectives on the writers in this chapter tonight. Uh, so, yes, and certainly next week when we get to Farmer Maggot, we'll have a whole new perspective on the writers. Uh, they're just going to get worse and worse and worse. Um, and, and more and more terrifying, yes. Kate says, imagine if you found and confronted the Sackville Bagginses. Lobelia versus the Nazgul. Okay, we might need to wrap up tonight's session a little early so I can write some fan fiction. I hope that's okay. I promise to share it with you all afterward. <laughs> James Downey said, you just got hashtag gaffered. Yes. <laughs> excellent. All right. As, as Jenna Katz calls out, maggot, maggot, maggot. Yes, excellent. I cannot wait to talk about Farmer Maggot. Chapter four, uh, one of my favorite chapters. It's, it's very short, so we're going to have a lot of time to talk about it. And as I said, a little Q&A next week too, but I am super, super into it. Kate has no doubt at all that Lobelia would win. Yes. <laughs> excellent. Okay, let's uh, keep pushing on because that is our first beat of, of Frodo trying to leave. This is when he decides, hey, I'm done. I'm out. The, the, it, nosy neighbors and, and, and rumor mongering, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm leaving tonight. I'm leaving right now. Gandalf can keep up with me as he can. So then we actually leave. At the bottom of the hill on its western side, they came to the gate opening onto a narrow lane. There they halted and adjusted the straps of their packs. Presently, Sam appeared, trotting quickly and breathing hard. His heavy pack was hoisted high on his shoulders, and he had put on his head a tall, shapeless felt bag, which he called a hat. In the gloom, he looked very much like a dwarf. I'm sure you've given me all the heaviest stuff, said Frodo. I pity snails and all that carry their homes on their backs. I could take a lot more yet, sir. My pack's quite light, said Sam stoutly and untruthfully. No, you don't, Sam, said Pippin. It's, it is good for him. He's got nothing except what he ordered us to pack. He's been slack lately, and he'll feel the weight less when he's walked off some of his own. Be kind to a poor old hobbit, laughed Frodo. I shall be thin as a willow wand, I'm sure, before I get to Buckland. But I was talking nonsense. I suspect you've taken more than your share, Sam, and I shall look into it at our next packing. He picked up his stick again. Well, we all like walking in the dark, he said. So let's put some miles before, behind us before bed. For a short way, they followed the lane westward. Then, leaving it, they turned left and took quietly to the fields again. They went in a single file along hedgerows and the borders of coppices, and night fell dark about them. In their dark cloaks, they were invisible as if they all had magic rings. Since they were all hobbits and were trying to be silent, they made no noise that even hobbits would hear. Even the wild things in the fields and the woods hardly noticed their passing. Um, I guess I want to talk about Sam's hat first. I guess I, I don't I might talk about. I just really want to observe it and, and, and love it and love Sam and love all that is in this sentence. He had put on his head a tall, shapeless felt bag, which he called a hat. In the gloom, he looked very much like a dwarf. And that last note there, I think, is very important because remember how horrified Bilbo was upon his departure from the Shire to think that anyone might consider him a dwarf. But luckily, he was beardless, so no one could, even in Dwalin's hood and cloak. But here, Sam is wearing this felt bag. He doesn't seem at all concerned that, that people might confuse him for a dwarf. It's just adorable. And of course, we see him volunteering to carry even more. We just want more. We just he, He's willing to carry all the weight because he is, uh, because he is Sam, because he is the best. There is an interesting thing to catch here, too, in Frodo's interaction, because Frodo expresses a somewhat rhetorical complaint. I pity snails and all that carry their homes on their backs. 
pity, says Gandalf from somewhere nearby. But yes, yes, I pity snails and all that carry their homes on their backs. Sam steps in with a completely earnest note of support. I could take a lot more yet, sir. My pack is quite light. Pippin intercedes with a joke at Frodo's expense. No, you don't, Sam. It's good for him. He's got nothing except what he ordered us to pack. He's been slack lately, and he'll feel the weight less when he's walked off some of his own. Here we are immediately assured of Pippin's social class. Pippin and Frodo are of the same social order. They are both gentle hobbits. So they will tease each other. It will be playful and it will be affectionate, but it will also be intimate in its way. But Frodo does not have that kind of relationship with Sam. Be kind to a poor old hobbit. He's laughing. I shall be as thin as a willow wand, I'm sure, before I get to Buckland. This is all very jolly, and he's having a good time with Pippin. But then he turns his attention back to Sam. But I was talking nonsense. I suspect you've taken more than your share, Sam, and I shall look into it at our next packing. There's no joke there. That's just earnestness. That is Frodo showing Sam the respect that he deserves. Not because Sam is bereft of a sense of humor, not because Sam isn't, isn't you know, uh, not because Sam isn't a jocular and approachable fellow, not because he is in any way lacking in social skill, but simply because he's of a different social class. So Frodo is interacting with Sam in the way that is most kind and generous and and appropriate. And I just love that. As Graham says, every Baggins leaves Bag End with at least the hint of dwarves. Great mirroring. That's actually my new cologne, hint of dwarf. It's pretty good. Kind of has a, a little edge of, you know, the minds of Moria about it. It really works. And obviously it comes in a bottle shaped like the Arkenstone, which is pretty great. Um, yes. <laughs> Chris says, the relations of the characters are all worked in so naturally and wonderfully. I'd forgotten how well J.R.R.T. wrote until I returned to his work for Tab again. I'm so, so glad. I'm so glad because you're right. There is a huge amount of depth in his characterization and in the way that he writes these relationships. It's really just, just lovely. And here we see the hobbits moving through the Shire, moving through their, their familiar terrain silently. And that's going to be important because, well, they're not always going to be so completely silent. Jenna says, if I remember correctly, the social class thing breaks down a bit as the books go on. Um, yeah, I mean, breaks down a little bit, but never breaks down is the thing. Um, under stress, it becomes a little, a little fractured, perhaps. But Frodo and Sam, even to the very end of the story, are of different social orders. And their profound intimacy and friendship, which really is profound, the love between Frodo and Sam is honored best and respected best by observing that distinction between the two of them, that Sam and Frodo are different. They are never going to have the relationship that Mary and Pippin and Frodo have because they're of, of different social orders. Good. Yes. All right. <laughs> Nikki says, if, the, if you're hinted dwarf makes you look anything like Keely, then I'm all for it. Keely is far too hot, uh, far too hot to be a dwarf. Isn't he just far too hot to be a dwarf? Okay. Let's, um, Let's uh, move on. Yes, okay. So we're moving through the Shire. And we're about to get to one of the most controversial passages in the entire book. Um, possibly the passage which is least compatible with the overall narrative tone of The Lord of the Rings that, that we're going to read over the course of the next thousand pages. This is, this is a standout moment, and this is included, I think, in many people's list of least favorite moments in The Lord of the Rings, and we are going to discuss it. We're going to talk about the talking, fo uh, the thinking fox, I'm sorry, the thinking fox. The wind's in the west, said Sam. If we get on the other side of this hill, we shall find a spot that is sheltered and snug enough, sir. There's dry firewood just ahead, if I remember rightly. 
Sam knew the land well within 20 miles of Hobbiton, but that was the limit of his geography. Just over the top of the hill, they came on a patch of firwood. Leaving the road, they went into a deep resin-scented darkness of the trees and gathered dead sticks and cones to make a fire. Soon they had a merry crackle of flame at the foot of a large fir tree, and they sat round it for a while until they began to nod. Then, each in an angle of the great tree's roots, they curled up in their cloaks and blankets and were soon fast asleep. They set no watch. Even Frodo feared no danger yet, and they were still in the heart of the Shire. A few creatures came and looked on them when the fire had died away. A fox passing through the wood on business of his own stopped several minutes and sniffed. Hobbits, he thought. Oh, what next? I have heard of strange doings in this land, and I have seldom heard of hobbit but I have seldom heard of hobbits sleeping out of doors under a tree. Three of them. There's something mighty queer behind this. He was quite right, but he never found out any more about it. So the fox thinks. We are given a privileged perspective on the fox's internal monologue, and that is recounted to us in the pages of the narrative. And again, we have to ask, who wrote this? Because it could be Frodo. It could be just a little bit of whimsy that occurred to Frodo as he was writing the story that, hey, this was the first night that we spent out of doors. We all curled up. Hey, there was probably, hey, one of the folks came by and looked at us and thought it was weird. Wouldn't that be funny? Wouldn't that be cute? Well, okay, Frodo could, could include that in the manuscript, theoretically. It does seem to push against the tone of the rest of the book, but okay. Or it could be an inclusion by a later adapter, by perhaps Tolkien himself, because I've got to tell you, the, the thinking fox, I keep wanting to say the talking fox, because, okay, technically speaking, the fox does not talk aloud, but the fox does use English words in its internal monologue. So it is a kind of talking fox. It is kind of talking silently to itself is kind of how I would, how I would, you know, categorize this particular odd animal. And to me, it kind of reeks of Victoriana. It kind of has that sense of the Victorian children's book. It's got something of Lewis Carroll about it. It's got something of C.S. Lewis about it, honestly. It feels absolutely and categorically at odds with the depiction of animals throughout the remainder of The Lord of the Rings. And it does, I must admit, cause me to stumble. It does cause me to hesitate as I'm reading it. It's such, such an odd moment. Uh, Gene says, I mean, both Frodo and Sam knew what was in the pages of There and Back Again, so we had eagles and wargs and birds chatting up all over the place. That's absolutely true. That's, that's very fair. And it could be, I'm kind of interested, in fact, in the idea that it is a conscious throwback to the pages of The Hobbit that, I mean, presumably we understand now that not all of those animals talked. I think, okay, let's take the most outrageous example, the talking purse. We can be pretty confident that there wasn't actually a talking purse, that, that Bilbo didn't encounter such a magical artifact, that this was part of his invention, that this was either part of Bilbo's invention or part of an invention by a later author in order to make the story more fantastical and more palatable to children. That seems as though it fits better in the span of our understanding of, of Middle-earth than the fact that trolls just happened to have a weirdly powerful magical artifact that, that was just hanging out there. It's possible then that this is a conscious throwback to that. And it's possible that it's just a bit of whimsy. It's possible that it's just a bit of absurdity. It's possible that it is a nod to, you know, Victorian children's stories. But there is a reason why it stands out. And it is this tonal reason. This is far more whimsical, far more lighthearted. And possessed of an odd narrative quality compared to everything else in the book. 
this idea. Um, so he, he, the fox passing through the wood on business of his own, which is a lovely kind of, uh, a lovely old fashioned sentiment, uh, which I rather adore. We then get the attributed dialogue and then, uh, there's something mighty queer behind this, thinks the fox. He was quite right, but he never found out any more about it. Okay. I mean, cool. That That's, I don't know why we're in the fox's POV in this passage. It's so strange. And what is most strange about it is that this passage survives from the first draft of The Lord of the Rings. This is, this is you know, from the original version that Tolkien wrote. So he had so many opportunities to revise this and to take it out and deliberately chose not to. And it is possible that it is a nod toward the ways in which the Lord of the Rings changed in the telling, the ways in which the story expanded, the ways in which the story grew darker, the ways in which the story grew more adult, the ways in which the story simply grew more complicated. It's possible that this was always a point of affection for Tolkien and that he used it as a marker to what the Lord of the Rings had been when it was simply the sequel to The Hobbit. Yeah. Uh, Graham says, every once in a while, Tolkien is a bit indulgent. The Fox is just lovely. Tom Bombadil, for example, is a massive inside reference with his family. We'll talk about Tom Bombadil in a couple of weeks too. It's pretty fun uh, before we talk about Aragorn, in fact. Um, good, good. Um, <laughs> Kate says, the talking purse is one of those things that I tell myself never happens, so much so that I always forget it entirely. You and many, many people who read The Hobbit. Yes, good, good. Uh, Heroes and Bars says, it calls to mind Beatrix Potter to me. Yeah, exactly. That kind of Victoriana. Exactly right. Yes, good. That, that's Beatrix Potter is, in fact, the ultimate example of that. Great work. Yes. Good. <laughs> All right. Okay. Let's uh, take another look here. Um, because then we get Frodo's song. And I don't want to spend too long on this because uh, Frodo's song is a recapitulation of um, of Bilbo's song, a very conscious recapitulation. Well, I say conscious, though apparently Frodo doesn't seem to be aware that he is quoting. He is kind of calling up from within a, 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 a repetition, a recapitulation of... of uh, of um, Bilbo's song. I'm just reading here in the YouTube chat. Jenna Cat said, I just reread Tom Bombadil and I don't hate it? Question mark, question mark, question mark. This is my intent. Uh, Kate says, I love Tom Bombadil and I will fight anyone over him. Guys, it's going to be pretty good. It's going to be pretty good conversation when we get to that. Okay. Uh, so this is the poem and I'll only read one version of this and point out the different word, which I'm sure you can see on the slide here in front of you. The road goes ever on and on down from the door where it began. Now far ahead, the road has gone and I must follow if I can, pursuing it with weary feet until it joins some larger way where many paths and errands meet and whither then I cannot say. So the difference between Bilbo's version of the song and Frodo's version of the song is that one word, weary. It's the, the, the weary feet, or in Bilbo's version, eager feet. And what I love about this is the way that that one change alters our entire perception of the rest of the poem. When it's eager feet, now far ahead the road has gone and I must follow if I can, pursuing it with eager feet until it joins some larger way. Bilbo's into this. Bilbo's with it. The, the road is issuing Bilbo a challenge and Bilbo is up to it. But Frodo's song is different because that one word is different. Now far ahead the road has gone and I must follow if I can, pursuing it with weary feet until it joins some larger way where many paths and errands meet. And whither then, I cannot say. Frodo is not rising to the road's challenge. He is dragged along by the road's obligation. 
He is forced into this journey and the weariness of his feet completely recontextualize the rest of the poem. It's just, just gorgeous. Uh, Heroes and Bard says, was Bilbo ever eager? Well, I mean, he did run out without his handkerchief. So that was a kind of eagerness, I suppose. But we must remember that this is the poem that Bilbo sings when he's returning to the Shire at the end of his adventure. So he has been transformed. Uh, or, or I should say the original version of this is the, the song that Bilbo sings when he's on his way back. This is now the song that he sings as he's departing to Rivendell, which I think, yes, he, he was genuinely eager. Yes. Good. What a difference a word can make, says Callie. Yes. I, I couldn't agree more. The way that it recontextualizes our whole interpretation is is just just shocking and kind of wonderful. And then, and then, and then the narrative takes a turn because now we have the introduction of the Black Rider, the real introduction of the Black Rider. Round the corner came a black horse, no hobbit pony, but a full-sized horse. And on it sat a large man who seemed to crouch in the saddle, wrapped in a great black cloak and hood, so that only his boots and the high stirrups showed below. His face was shadowed and invisible. When it reached the tree and was level with Frodo, the horse stopped. The riding figure sat quite still with its head bowed as if listening. From inside the hood came a noise as of someone sniffing to catch an elusive scent. The head turned from side to side of the road. A sudden, unreasoning fear of discovery laid hold of Frodo, and he thought of his ring. He hardly dared to breathe, and yet the desire to get it out of his pocket became so strong that he slowly began to move his hand. He felt that he had only to slip it on, and then he would be safe. The advice of Gandalf seemed absurd. Bilbo had used the ring, and I'm still in the Shire, he thought, as his hand touched the chain on which it hung. At that moment, the rider sat up and shook the reins. The horse stepped forward, walking slowly at first and then breaking into a quick trot. Frodo crawled to the edge of the road and watched the rider until he dwindled into the distance. He could not be quite sure, but it seemed to him that suddenly, before it passed out of sight, the horse turned aside and went into the trees on the right. Well, I call that very queer and indeed disturbing, said Frodo to himself as he walked back to, as he walked towards his companions. Pippin and Sam had remained flat in the grass and had seen nothing, so Frodo described the rider and his strange behavior. I can't say why, but I felt certain he was looking or smelling for me. And also I felt certain that I did not want him to discover me. I have never seen or felt anything like it in the Shire before. So, firstly, we must be reminded that the hobbits move silently. That in their desire to remain unseen, they are practically invisible. Even other hobbits, even other creatures of the wild, and by wild here we're using the lowercase w version of wild, even creatures of the countryside won't notice the passing of a hobbit. But here, the Black Rider stops right next to Frodo. And then we get what is, I would say, the first completely unequivocal intrusion of the ring into Frodo's thought process. This is the first time that the ring completely shows up. This is the first time that the ring is a spotlight on Frodo. A sudden unreasoning fear of discovery laid hold of Frodo and he thought of his ring. He hardly dared to reason, yet the desire to get it out of his pocket became so strong that he slowly began to move his hand. He felt that he only had only to slip it on, and then he would be safe. The advice of Gandalf seemed absurd. Bilbo had used the ring, and I am still in the Shire, he thought, as his hand touched the chain on which it hung. I am still in the Shire, he thought. And then look at the last line of the slide there. I've never seen or felt anything like it in the Shire before. The fact that he's in the Shire is completely irrelevant to the proceeding here. And he knows that. Logically, he knows that. 
But here we see the influence of the ring. I'm going to pause here just to say that Becca is giving us fantastic news here in the YouTube chat. Becca, I am very, very glad to hear the news about your friend. She doesn't have cancer. This is great. We all raise a glass. I am raising a, well, guys, I'm drinking a bottle of cherry Coke during tonight's proceedings, which doesn't seem appropriately celebratory. But let me tell you, Becca, the minute that I'm done here, I will raise an actual glass of something delicious. Excellent. Great, great news. Um, so Frodo here is definitely under the influence of the ring. And look at the way that the ring exerts that influence. He's already moving his hand toward it. He felt that he only had to slip it on and then he would be safe. What is it that Frodo wants right now? Safety. He feels that he is in danger. He wants to be safe. And the ring says, hey, 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 I can help you out. I can hook a guy up. You put me on. You'll be super safe. Everything's going to be fine. Of course, we know from our privileged position that the opposite would be true. It would be disastrous for Frodo to put the ring on right now. He would be absolutely revealed to the Nazgul, which seems to be what the ring itself wants. Put the ring on, everything's going to be fine. Frodo, buddy, have I led you astray? Have I ever led you astray? The advice of Gandalf seemed absurd. Bilbo had used the ring. Well, that's true, and Gandalf had been very clear about the consequence of using the ring. It had been a bad idea, and his last words to Frodo before leaving the Shire were quite unequivocal. Don't use it. But now Frodo is tempted. Which forces us here to ask a question. What saves Frodo? And still in the Shire, he thought, as his hand touched the chain on which it hung. At that moment, the rider sat up and shook the reins. The horse stepped forward, walking slowly at first and then breaking into a quick trot. What do we make of that? Not only does the horse move off, not only does the rider move off, but moves off at a quick trot. He's moving off with speed and seems to cross into the trees before he is out of sight. He disappears here. <laughs> Jenna's saying every time the ring has the close-up Frodo, my man, my dude Frodo, listen up brah yeah <laughs> I can definitely do, yeah, no, I can uh, Jenna's asking, I want a Lord of the Rings with Alistair dubbing line for, lines for the rings, I can definitely make that happen, it'll be fine, it'll be fine um, so what is it that saves Frodo here, what is it that, that drives off the ring race, what is it that lures away the ring race at this point why does the Black Rider not just investigate, five seconds five seconds is all it would have taken and Frodo would have put on the ring and he would have been revealed and I mean, the rest of history would have been disastrous, I guess, presumably like bad, bad things would have happened so what is it that pulls the ring race away, well it's very tempting to say luck Certainly, there's nothing presented to us in the text as, as, you know, a definitive cause of the Black Rider losing interest. He just, at the most important moment, ups and moves off. So we don't know. Narratively speaking, well, narratively speaking, it does feel like luck. Narratively speaking, it does feel like, like that famous Baggins luck, or it feels like the intrusion of grace. It feels like catastrophe. It feels like something, something is watching out for Frodo. This is one of the least... <sighs> One of the least motivated moments of action, uh, okay, if you plot a graph that has plot importance and degree of motivation, then this is going to be an outlier is what I'm saying. It is a very important moment that appears to be woefully under motivated, but that is not, of course, 
accidental because we're going to get a super motivated turn for the black rider in just a few pages time and when we get that there's going to be a sense of of the broader world in which frodo finds himself it's going to be contextualized in that way but this is very different yeah jackie says this is such a close call this really freaked me out as a kid yes i completely agree yeah good Nikki says, could the last thought of the Shire be what saved him? Something wholesome interrupting the lure of the ring. Hmm. I like the idea that something wholesome can interrupt the lure of the ring. Yes, but the Nazgul wouldn't be just influenced by the lure of the ring because presumably he's been searching. I mean, Frodo wasn't thinking of the ring as he was walking down toward the end of Bagshot Row. He was, he was thinking about Gandalf and he was thinking about leaving Bag End and all of these things. So the, the Wraith isn't drawn by Frodo's attention on the ring or even by the presence of the ring itself. Not, not, not that simply. Um, but it is possible that that something there, some force of goodness, some some actual virtue on Frodo's part, did you know contribute to his his safety? Yeah, good. Yes, Kanoni uh, Knits. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Noni Knits, possibly without that. Uh, didn't Gandalf say that Frodo was meant to have the ring and not by Sauron? Yes, yes, Gandalf did say that. Someone out there, some force out there, and this could be the the root. I mean. Okay, let's let's not be equivocal here. When we're talking about some force out there, we're talking about, I mean, we're talking about Iluvatar. We're talking about God, even though he is all but absent from the story. You know, we don't really get a sense of anything there. But some benevolent force, according to Gandalf, wants Frodo to have the ring specifically. And some benevolent force is apparently taking action throughout the story. Now, that is partly what leads to these moments of eucatastrophe. As I said back when we were discussing The Hobbit, a moment of eucatastrophe is an intercession of grace. It is a complete disaster out of which springs goodness and hope and positivity, that things work out even in their, their you know, turn toward disaster. And that happens not necessarily because there is an active presence that is, that is making good things happen, but because the world itself is constructed so that it turns toward justice. That, that the creator of this world, the creator of Arda, Iluvatar, as we learn in the Aina Lindale and the Silmarillion, is benevolent. He, you know, ultimately, his creation will turn to the good. And there is a recognition of that in the existence of eucatastrophe. But there's also recognition of that in the, in the existence of this famous Baggins luck. So, yes, possibly, possibly. Um, good. Okay, let me see here. Uh, <laughs> Jackie apparently... Uh, apparently uh, Yes, Jackie apparently anticipated me and my use of the word Iluvatar by mere seconds, to which Kate says, sometimes I swear you and Alistair share a brain. No, Jackie has all her own brain. I'm just making do with what I've got. Yes. And Sarah says it works for me without a creator. No, it absolutely does. This is the thing. The absence of the creator also allows us to, to fill that in with a general kind of, a, a, a kind of cosmic benevolence, I suppose. It doesn't need to be personified. It doesn't need to be, to be singularly motivated. It, it, it is just, this is the functioning of the world, that the world will turn to goodness, that the world will turn to justice. And that this is the instantiation of that, I guess. Yeah. Heroes and Bard says, this journey could have ended so many times before it had even begun. Yes. <laughs> oh, Lauren here is calling out. Oh, my God. I haven't thought of this in forever. Lauren is calling out here DM of the Rings. If you guys haven't seen this, you should definitely go and check it out. It is a webcomic composed of stills from the Lord of the Rings with captions which uh, tell the story of the Lord of the Rings movies being played as a role-playing game. It's extremely funny. DM of the Rings, you can go check it out. Yes. Thank you for the reminder of that, Lauren. I genuinely haven't read that in, in gosh, many, many years. Uh, I did read the, the Star Wars one too, I think. Yeah, yeah. 
Yes, Dungeon Masters, as Jonathan Nash says, rarely turn their worlds towards benevolence. Those that do makes for some very strange and interesting games. Good. Also, Darts and Droids. Yes, I couldn't remember the name of the Star Wars one. Thank you, it don't connect. Yes, Darts and Droids is excellent. Good, good. Okay, um, excellent, excellent. Okay, let's push on then because of course we have still a lot to cover here. Um, let's get on, in fact, to the, uh, to the song that we sing. Um, yeah, I'm running a little late, so I probably won't have time to, uh, I probably won't have time to give this due diligence. Let me check. I have, okay, four more, four more slides, five more slides. I can do that in 20 minutes. That's easy. Okay. Upon the hearth, the fire is red. Beneath the roof, there is a bed, but not yet weary are our feet. Still round the corner, we may meet a sudden tree or standing stone that none have seen, but we alone tree and flower and leaf and grass let them pass let them pass hill and water under sky pass them by pass them by still round the corner there may wait a new road or a secret gate and though we pass them by today tomorrow we may come this way and take the hidden paths that run toward the moon or to the sun apple thorn and nut and slow let them go let them go sand and stone and pool and dale fare you well fare you well there's an extra line here at the bottom because I did some cutting and pasting here, and I'm sorry that I left it there. Ignore that last line on that slide. Home is behind, the world ahead, and there are many paths to tread through shadows to the edge of night until the stars are all alight. And world behind and home ahead will wander back to home and bed. Mist and twilight, cloud and shade, away shall fade, away shall fade. Fire and lamp and meat and bread, and then to bed, and then to bed. So there are three phases of this song, three phases of the poem that I just adore here. The first, upon the hearth, the fire is red. Beneath the roof, there is a bed, but not yet weary are our feet. Still round the corner, we may meet, and on and on, okay? So there is a home. Upon the hearth, the fire is red. Beneath the roof, there is a bed. There is a home. There is a home in the world but our feet aren't tired. And around the corner, we're going to see amazing things. A sudden tree or standing stone that none have seen but we alone. Let's go, let's just go. This is the road trip spirit. There's stuff out there and I want to see all of it. And we're passing it by, let them pass, let them pass. Hill and water under sky, pass them by, pass them by. We are fierce for the journey now, we're fierce for the road. Then in the second stanza, still round the corner, there may wait a new road or a secret gate. And though we pass them by today, tomorrow we may come this way and take the hidden paths that run towards the moon or to the sun. Apple, thorn, and nut, and slow, let them go, let them go. Sand and stone at pool and, and dell, fare you well, fare you well. Here we're seeing the experience. We're turning the curve here in the story. There are things out here that we are seeing now. We've got the new road, the secret gate, though we pass them by today because we're still in the rush. The, the road itself is carrying us ever on and on, but we're seeing these opportunities. We're seeing these, these temptations and we're indexing them and we're collecting them and someday maybe and someday maybe not. Home is behind, the world ahead, and there are many paths to tread through shadows to the edge of night until the stars are all alight. Then world behind and home ahead, will wander back to home and bed. Mist and twilight, cloud and shade, away shall fade, away shall fade, and fire and lamp and meat and bread, and then to bed, and then to bed. So home is behind, and the world is ahead, and there are many paths to tread, through shadows to the edge of night, until the stars are all alight, which is 
kind of throwing forward to the song that we will get from the elves, Elbereth Gilthoniel. We'll talk a little about that. We'll talk a little about Varda when we get to her. But this is, this is the, the encapsulation of the spirit of the song. The home is behind. The world is ahead. Let's do it. Let's see it all. Let's keep going, keep going, keep going through the shadows to the edge of night. This is the destination that we have in mind. We're pushing as far as we can push until the stars are all alight. And then, well, then the world behind and home ahead will wander back to home and bed. We're not marching now. We're not questing. We're not adventuring. We're not racing. We're not urgent. We're wandering back to home and bed. Mist and twilight, cloud and shade, away shall fade, away shall fade. Even our experience of the world is now gentle. We raced out, and now we're wandering back. If you contrast, let them pass, let them pass, pass them by, pass them by, let them go, let them go, fare you well, fare you well. And then, away shall fade, away shall fade. That is literally the passive voice. You know, as we're coming back, mist and twilight, cloud and shade, away shall fade, away shall fade, fire and lamp, and meat and bread, and then to bed, and then to bed. That is the perfect encapsulation for me. That 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 it is perfectly evocative of that experience of being out late at night and finally returning home. That special kind of comfort that comes when it is very, very late and you are very, very tired and you come home and you fall into your armchair or you fall onto your bed and you exhale. You, you breathe the breath of the justifiably exhausted. And then you are, you are comforted again. Yes. Good. Good. Oh, good. Jackie's throwing forward too. They ought to remember that mist and twilight, cloud and shade, away shall fade part in the next chapter with the, uh, with the fairy. Yes, that's very good. Excellent. Excellent. Lorna Jane says, I love the first half of the last verse. I want to print it and display it along with my travel memorabilia. It's so urgent and driving. I, I love that too. That, that I think is, is more representative of my spirit. That is more representative of my attitude toward travel. I, I am more in the home is behind, the world is ahead, and there are many paths to tread through, through shadows to the edge of night until the stars are all alight. That's, yeah, I, I get that kind of excited when I'm, when I'm thinking about a road trip, um, as you can tell by the excitement in my voice right now. Yes. Sarah says, was thinking about getting it for road trips. Yes, yes, yes. Good. Good. Excellent. But of course, there is an irony here. There is a, a kind of quiet tragedy here. Because look at the story that we're telling. We depart and we, we venture forth and we do so with, with, with enthusiastic spirit. We do, we do so with, with courage in our hearts, undaunted by the world. We venture forth until the stars are all alight. And then, crucially, we turn around. And it's not a home that, that lies ahead now. It's not a resting place. It's not the, the crook of the roots of an ancient fir tree. It's home. It's the hearth where the fire is red, where beneath the roof there is a bed. We've gone out and now we're coming back. This is a there and back again story as Bilbo's was a there and back again story. And as Frodo has already made clear, his story is not a there and back again story. He doesn't get to come home. He doesn't get to return to the Shire. He doesn't get to to have that moment of, of relaxation, that moment of, of exhalation, as I said. Yeah, good. All right, we have, oh, we're, we're getting road trip fever here, I see. Yes, it's that time of the year. It's that time of the year, yeah. 
<laughs> you playlist if you like. Frodo road trip is also a very pleasing phrase to say, so I encourage you to say that as often as you can. Hey, say it out loud right now. All right, let's get to it as we move into um, our second encounter with the Black Riders. Okay, we're having a momentary loss of connection here, but everything seems to be okay. I'm hoping everything's going to be all right. Yes, a momentary loss of connection, but it's all okay, you guys. Let's do this thing. The hooves drew nearer. They had no time to find any hiding place better than the general darkness under the trees. Sam and Pippin crouched behind a large tree bowl while Frodo, excuse me, while Frodo crept back a few yards toward the lane. It showed gray and pale, a line of fading light through the wood. Above it, the stars were thick in the dim sky, but there was no moon. The sound of hoofs stopped. As Frodo watched, he saw something dark pass across the lighter space between two trees and then halt. It looked like the black shade of a horse, led by a smaller black shadow. The black shadow stood close to the point where they had left the path, and it swayed from side to side. Frodo thought he heard the sound of snuffling. The shadow bent to the ground, and then began to crawl towards him. Once more, the desire to slip on the ring came over Frodo, but this time it was stronger than before, so strong that almost before he realized what he was doing, his hand was groping in his pocket. But at that moment, there came a sound like mingled song and laughter. Clear voices rose and fell in the starlit air. The black shadow straightened up and retreated. It climbed onto the shadowy horse and seemed to vanish across the lane into the darkness on the other side. Frodo breathed again. Elves! exclaimed Sam in a hoarse whisper. Elves, sir! He would have burst out of the trees and dashed off toward the voices if they had not pulled him back. Yes, it is elves, said Frodo. One can meet them sometimes in the woody end. They don't live in the Shire, but they wander into it in the spring and autumn out of their own lands away beyond the Tower Hills. And I am thankful that they do. You did not see, but that black rider stopped just here and was actually crawling towards us when the song began. As soon as he heard the voices, he slipped away. Let me tell you, you guys, a few of you are calling out the snuffling here, which I completely get, but let me tell you, far, far worse than the snuffling is the crawling. The crawling is terrifying. I hate the crawling black rider. That is genuinely creepy and disconcerting. So, uh... Yes, the, the, yes, good. The snuffling is... <laughs> I see a lot of support for, for the snuffling being terrible. Yes, good. Yeah, the crawling is just, just the worst. Um, so this time, we get another encounter with the Black Rider. Frodo is again tempted to use the ring, but here we have the intercession of something else, something that is not eucatastrophic. We do not have here the collapse into disaster that would be required for eucatastrophe. Here we just have the intercession of luck. Here we have the coming of the elves. And this is, as I said, when contrasted with the first appearance of the Black Rider, this is well-motivated. This makes a lot of sense. The Black Rider stops, he gets down, he's snuffling, and then the song. And we know about the songs of the elves, we know what they're like, we know the magic that they can carry with them. And it's funny to think, too, of Sam wanting to rush off after the elves and what would happen. Because we remember what happens if you rush after elves in the middle of the forest. You get all turned around and put to sleep. Certainly that's what happened with Bilbo and the dwarves in Mirkwood. Now, these are not wild elves, so we possibly don't have to worry about the same consequences, but uh, yeah. Good, good. The Black Riders don't creep me out anywhere near as much as Shelob says it don't connect. Well, we'll get to Shelob in 
eight months, something like that. But yes, no, I, I think Shelob is probably the scariest thing in, in the Lord of the Rings. Yes, good. Though we are, I, I just reread the um, the Barrowites, and the Barrowites are creepy too. Yeah. Crawling Black Rider says Graham Ward is very Dracula. Rebecca Rebecca Kalella says, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Kalea, I suppose it could be. Rebecca, either way, says, picturing the Crawling Black Rider is nightmare fuel. Yes, yes. It's the kind of thing, says Jackie, kids could imagine seeing in their rooms at night the Crawling Black Rider. Well, now we're all going to have nightmares about it tonight. So we can all just hang out on the internet when we're... Uh, when we're uh, done, you know, we'll just all hang out on Twitter when you're having, um, when you're having nightmares tonight. Uh, Aaron says, elves, tra-la-la-lolly. <laughs> well, we're not quite tra-la-la-lolly here, but we're not a million miles away from it. Let's take a look at, um, yes, let's take a look at, uh, you know what, we'll, we'll read Elbereth Glothoniel and I'll come back to this, I think, next week, um, because this is going to be more significant than I have time to, to get to here. Um, so this is the elves' song. Snow White, Snow White, O Lady Clear, O Queen beyond the western seas, O light to us that wander here amid the world of woven trees, Gilthoniel, O Elbereth, clear are thy eyes and bright thy breath, Snow White, Snow White, we sing to thee in a far land beyond the sea, O stars that in the sunless year with shining hand by her were sown, in windy fields now bright and clear we see your silver blossom blown, O Elbereth, Gilthoniel, we still remember we who dwell in this far land beneath the trees, thy starlight on the western seas. So this is a um this is a uh a classic, yeah, yes, this is <laughs> I'm just catching up with the YouTube chat here. Yes. Angela's saying we'll wake you up on Twitter, Alistair. Yes, Twitter has woken me up on more than one occasion, Angela, I tell you. Yes. Good, good. Um uh, Jenna says, the first time I read uh, Elbereth, I remember thinking how ethereal they seemed. And it's so striking to, uh, to read this after reading, the, um, after reading the Hobbit songs, particularly, you know, the Hearth song. It, it's because Hobbit poetry is very kind of functional and it's very heavily rhythmic and it's very clean and it doesn't generally tend toward metaphorical. Even their poetry is fairly prosy, but that isn't true of elves. Here we have a much more complicated syntax. We have a much more much more complicated structure, even though by elven standards, this is actually a very simple poem indeed. Um, yes, good. I don't want to to delve too deeply into this is actually a great topic for the Q&A next week so I think what I'll do is I'll put a pin in uh in in Varda right now I'll put a pin in in Elbereth Gilthoniel and we'll we'll come back to her next week yes good okay because I still have a couple of slides to go and it's almost 9:30 here in Oklahoma City and we have to meet Gildor here we go I am Gildor answered their leader the elf who had first hailed them Gildor Inglorian of the house of Finrod we are exiles, and most of our kindred have long ago departed, and we too are now only tarrying here a while ere we return over the great sea. But some of our kinsfolk dwell still at peace in Rivendell. Come now, Frodo, tell us what you are doing, for we see that there is some shadow of fear upon you. Oh, wise people, interrupted Pippin eagerly. Tell us about the Black Riders. Black Riders, they said in low voices. Why do you ask about Black Riders? "'Because two black riders have overtaken us today, "'or one has done so twice,' said Pippin. "'Only a little while ago he slipped away as you drew near.' "'The elves did not answer at once, "'but spoke together softly in their own tongue. "'At length Gildor turned to the hobbits. 
We will not speak of this here, he said. We think you had best come now with us. It is not our custom, but for this time we will take you on our road, and you shall lodge with us tonight if you will. Oh, fair folk, this is good fortune beyond my hoping, said Pippin. Sam was speechless. I thank you indeed, Gilder and Glorian, said Frodo, bowing. Ellen Sila Lumen, Homentielo, a star shines on the hour of our meeting, he added in the high elven speech, which apparently caused a little trouble to me, I apologize. Be careful, friends, cried Gilder, laughing. Speak no secrets. Here is a scholar in the ancient tongue. Bilbo was a good master. Hail, elf friend, he said, bowing to Frodo. Come now with your friends and join our company. You had best walk in the middle so you may not stray. You may be weary before we halt. To contrast this with the um to contrast this with the encounters in Mirkwood between Bilbo and the dwarves and the elves, I think would be fascinating. To do a close textual analysis would be absolutely fascinating. What happens in Mirkwood is we have a classic story of mortal beings intruding into the realm of fairy. They intrude upon the elves and the elves disappear and then begin to take their revenge. And ultimately, Thorin is captured and pulled away into the realm of fairy outright. That's a very conventional fairy story. Here, though, something far worse happens. The elves are so concerned that they protect Frodo. There is something in the world more dangerous. They recognize him, Gildor recognizes him here in the last chapter as elf friend because he recognizes the, the high elven speech that Frodo uses that he has been taught by Bilbo. But all the same, they rescue, they, they rescue, it's probably overstating it, they assist Frodo and company because of the presence of the Black Riders. All it takes is for Pippin to mention Black Riders, and that is it. We will not speak of this here, he said. We think you had best come now with us. It is not our custom, but for this time we will take you on our road, and you shall lodge with us tonight, if you will. This is unprecedented. How many times could this possibly have happened in all of Gilder's long life? If this is not the first time, I would be very, very surprised, in fact. This is... A remarkable stroke of luck. The, the coming of the elves upon the Black Rider is, is enormously fortunate. But this, this is intercession. This is not, you know, this is not eucatastrophe because this is not, you know, cosmic. This is not uh, divine in its aspect. This is just goodness. This is just kindness. But still, Gilder here recognizes the danger that Frodo is in and takes him in. Note to um, the responses that we get. I love these responses. Oh, fair folk, this is good fortune beyond my hope, said Pippin. Sam was speechless. I thank you indeed, Gilder and Glorian. And then a star shines on the hour of our meeting in the High Alvin speech. Ellen Sila Lumen Omentielvo, I guess. Uh, yeah, I'm bad at my High Alvin. I do apologize. It's been a long time since I practiced it. Um, but those responses are perfect because what we get from Pippin is a is, is a proper response, is a courteous response. Oh, fair folk, this is good fortune beyond my hope. That's courteous, but maybe a little stilted. Oh, fair folk? Is that what we're saying to elves now? Do the elves refer to themselves by that honorific? Would we expect that to be a part of courtesy? Well, no, but Pippin doesn't know any better. This is just, this is this is courtesy. He's being polite. He's he's recognizing this situation for what it is and and exhibiting gratitude. That's appropriate. Sam doesn't have those social skills. Sam is stunned. Sam is speechless, and we'll pick up on that in the next chapter. Um, yeah. And then Frodo, of course, has the right... Oh, um, sorry, I just scrolled away past it. Someone was asking... <laughs> okay, the whole thing. Oh, excuse me. It don't connect was asking, exiles from where? 
Um, you know what? Let's add the history of the elves to the Q&A too. I'll give you a quick gloss of those, give you a quick gloss of Varda, give you a quick gloss of the Einar. It's going to be fine. It's going to be great. In fact, even a quick gloss of the Astari. We'll do a little bit of Silmarillion work just to kind of frame this up. Uh, suffice it to say, exiles doesn't necessarily mean what you would take it to mean here. And nor does tarrying a while, by the way. Gilder says that they are tarrying a while here, by which he means, hey, yeah, we're hanging out in Middle-earth been here for like a thousand years it's going to be fine we're going to be here for thousands more probably we're, we're just tarrying a while you know we're just hanging out yeah good okay let's um <laughs> good then let's get to our last uh let's get to our last slide here this is the uh when frodo turns to gildor for actual advice gildor was silent for a moment I do not like this news, he said at last. That Gandalf should be late does not bode well. But it is said, do not meddle in the affairs of wizards, for they are subtle and quick to anger. The choice is yours, to go or wait. And it is also said, answered Frodo, go not to the elves for counsel, for they will say both no and yes. Is it indeed, laughed Gildar. I'll seldom give unguarded advice, for advice is a dangerous gift, even from the wise to the wise, and all courses may run ill. But what would you? You have not told me all concerning yourself. How then shall I choose better than you? But if you demand advice, I will, for friendship's sake, give it. I think you should go now at once, without delay. And if Gandalf does not come before you set out, then I will advise also this. Do not go alone. Take such friends that are, as are trusty and willing. Now you should be grateful, for I do not give this counsel gladly. The elves have their own labors and their own sorrows, and they are little concerned with the ways of hobbits or of any other creatures upon earth. Our paths cross there seldom, by chance or purpose." In this meeting, there may be more than chance, but the purpose is not clear to me, and I fear to say too much. I am deeply grateful, said Frodo, but I wish you would, you would tell me plainly what the Black Riders are. If I take your advice, I may not see Gandalf for a good long while, and I ought to know what is the, excuse me, and I ought to know what is the danger that pursues me. It is not enough to know they are servants of the enemy, answered Gildor. Flee them. Speak no words to them. They are deadly. Ask no more of me. But my heart forebodes that ere all is ended, you, Frodo, son of Drogo, will know more of these fell things than Gildor and Glorian. May Albareth protect you. This is, I mean, so rich, so complex. And as you've probably all noticed already, I'm at time. So I'm just going to hang out and, and talk a little about this before we wrap up this evening. Because this third paragraph, this long paragraph here from Gildor is immense, is incredibly important. But first, but first... Two very useful aphorisms that we get. Do not meddle in the affairs of wizards, for they are subtle and quick to anger. Pretty good advice, you guys. I'm not sure that it's ever substantiated. Throughout the pages of The Lord of the Rings, I'm not sure, in fact, that we ever see a wizard be subtle or quick to anger, but still, nonetheless, good advice. And it is also said, answered Frodo, go not to the elves for counsel, for they will say both no and yes. That sounds to me like Bilbo's advice. That sounds to me like a little truism that Bilbo probably had cross-stitched above the fireplace at Bag End. I love to think of Bilbo coming up with that. And here we see, too, a really interesting relationship, because I observed earlier how Frodo will tease and, and banter with Pippin, but not with Sam, because they are of different social orders. Here, in teasing, in this adopting this somewhat impudent tone, and certainly getting the response that he gets from Gildor, uh, Frodo suggests or implies that he and Gildor are of somewhat equal social standing, which is, it may seem a very strange thing, but courtesy has been extended. 
Gildor has welcomed Frodo into his community. He has undertaken the protection of Frodo for this night. And that means, of course, that Frodo is, in a sense, an honorary elf. He is an elf friend, that, that's true, but here he is an honorary part of, of Gildor's company at this point. And I think that we can see that represented very nicely in that exchange. It is also said, go not to the elves for counsel, for they will say both no and yes. Is it indeed, laughed Gildor. Really? Hey, Frodo, listen up. Elves seldom give unguarded advice, for advice is a dangerous gift, even from the wise to the wise, and all courses may run ill. Elves don't like giving advice, because if you follow my advice and things turn out badly, well, that is in some part on me. So even from the wise to the wise, even from people who know what they are talking about to other people who know what they are talking about, which brackets Frodo does not include you, advice is dangerous. If I give you advice, I am in some sense taking on the burden of your decision. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to carry this weight for you. Not because the responsibility is too great or onerous for me, but rather because it is your decision. It is your purpose to decide this thing. Let's keep moving on. You have not told me all concerning yourself, and how then shall I choose better than you? But if you demand advice, I will for friendship's sake give it. I think you should go now at once without delay, and if Gandalf does not come before you set out, then I also advise this, do not go alone. Take such friends as are trusty and willing. Now you should be grateful, for I do not give this counsel gladly. Okay, let's break this down. You have not told me all concerning yourself, and how then shall I choose better than you? I don't know your situation. I'm wise, yes, but that doesn't mean that I have an intuitive knowledge of, of everything. I don't know your place. I don't know your situation. I don't know what your deal is, Frodo. You know all that there is to know about you right now. Of course you're in the best position to make this decision. I don't know, but since you're asking me for the sake of friendship, go now. Don't wait for Gandalf. Take friends you can trust. And by the way, just by the way, Frodo, you should be super grateful for the advice that I just gave you. You remember when I just said a minute ago, go now, don't wait for Gandalf, take friends you can trust? You know how those ideas would never have occurred to you normally? You should be grateful for the advice that I just gave you because I do not give this counsel gladly. This is fascinating to me. Gildor here is extending a pretty obvious piece of advice. While you're obviously in danger, don't hang around, get moving and take people you trust. This is fairly transparent advice, which is what suggests to me that Gildor is not reluctant to give advice because advice is difficult to give, but rather because advice is dangerous to give. It is important for Frodo to do these things himself. It is important for Frodo to, to figure this out. <laughs> As Kate Matt says in the YouTube chat, Gildor to Frodo, you do you, boo. Yes. <laughs> As Kate says, basically, look at your life. Look at your choices. Look at what you're doing, Frodo. Look at what you're doing. This is, the, this is the important part. The elves have their own labors and their own sorrows, and they are little concerned with the ways of hobbits or of any other creatures upon earth. Our paths, may, our paths cross there seldom by chance or purpose. In this meeting, there may be more than chance, but the purpose is not clear to me, and I fear to say too much. I fear to say too much. This reminds us of the conversation that Gandalf has with Frodo about Gollum back in chapter 2. That Gollum has, Gandalf has intuited, some role to play for good or evil in the story of the ring. 
Frodo, uh, that that Gollum is in some sense, to some degree, important. And Gandalf doesn't want to doesn't want to anticipate the movement of history, the unfolding of history, the movement of of the song by taking action against Gollum. Gollum will play out his part. And here, Gildar seems to have that same sense. Well, okay, sometimes we cross paths by chance, and sometimes it's purpose. There's more than chance here. So that makes me think it's purpose, and that makes me super reluctant to give you advice, Frodo, because that means that we are in the realm of important, capital I, things, capital T. This stuff matters. And you have been entrusted with whatever task you've been entrusted with. So I am not going to intrude upon that process by giving you advice. This is actually a huge gesture of trust in the universe and trust in Frodo. This is just like the encounter with Gandalf at the end of the second chapter. In fact, I think that if you parse it, you can basically break down the movement of the scene into, into very similar shapes. You know, I think that that this is Gildor and and by extension all elves giving Frodo the same kind of support that Gandalf did in the second. Yeah. Good. I'm deeply grateful, said Frodo, but I wish you would tell me plainly what the Black Riders are. If I take your advice, I may not see Gandalf for a good long, uh, for, for a long while, and I ought to know what is the danger that pursues me. Is it not enough to know they're servants of the enemy, answered Gildor? Flee them. Speak no words to them. They're deadly. Ask no more of me. But my heart forebodes that ere all is ended, you, Frodo, son of Droga, will know more of these fell things than Gildor and Glorian. May Elbereth protect you. Before we're done, I could tell you about the Black Riders, Frodo. I could tell you some things about the Black Riders, Frodo. But what would it help? How much better off would you be if you knew how dangerous these things are? Run away from them. You're not going to be able to run away from them better if you know how terrifying they are. This is it. Run. But I fear that right at the end, but by the time we reach the end of the story, you're going to know more about the Black Riders than even I do. And that is our note of foreboding, upon which we must conclude. That will do it for tonight, you guys. Let me show you the final slide here as we look ahead to the next session. The Fellowship of the Ring, Chapter 4, A Shortcut to Mushrooms. And as I said, because this is going to be a slightly shorter session, we'll do some Q&A. We'll have some fun conversation and stuff after we've discussed A Shortcut to Mushrooms. Now, we are going to do this at noon Eastern next week. That's Thursday, June 1st. June 1st is next Thursday. Can you believe it? That will be our next session of There and Back Again. I can't wait. Uh, Farmer Maggot, Mushrooms, Black Riders, Mary, the Buckleberry Fairy. The whole thing is pretty great. So I'm looking forward to getting to uh, getting to all of that. Thank you all so, so much for joining me. Thank you for your patience as I ran just a little bit long tonight. And thank you for your patience with the audio trouble at the beginning of tonight's live broadcast. I'll get that sorted out. It'll all be good. If you are around tomorrow and you are a supporter of Point North Media over on Patreon, definitely don't miss the Point North Live Q&A. Every Friday, I do an hour-long live Q&A where I hang out and sometimes drink a little wine and, and answer any questions on any subject that anyone cares to ask me. It's a ton of fun. If you support uh, Point North over on patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia, then you can get access to that. It's uh, it's a really good time. It's a great way to round out your week too. So that is happening tomorrow. Thank you all so much for your time. Thank you all so much for your energy. Thank you all so much for your thoughts. If you have extra thoughts to send me, you can email me pointnorthmedia at gmail.com or find me on Twitter using the hashtag tab again, T-A-B-A-G-A-I-N. And I will engage with you there. We can we can all talk about uh, talking. It's pretty great. All right. 
Thank you all so, so much. 2 a.m. local time for me, says Rebecca. Better stock up on energy drinks. Wow, where are you that noon is 2 a.m.? That, that, sounds, that sounds terrifying, Rebecca. I, I absolutely appreciate your, uh, your enthusiasm and your dedication. Thank you all so, so much. Oh, Becca is asking what time tomorrow. Uh, Becca, that's a great question. Let me look up the calendar, which you can find over on Point North. Um, okay. Oh, right. Uh, the discussion of episode four of the Stars Adaptation of American Gods is going out tomorrow afternoon, too. But the uh, Point North Live will be at 2 o'clock Eastern. That is 1 o'clock Central Time. So 2 o'clock Eastern, 1 o'clock Central. And that lasts for an hour. That's always a ton of fun. All right. Good night, everyone. Have a great night. Have a great week. I will talk to you all again very soon. Until then, take care. Take care.